Morning, everyone. Guys, good to see you today. Happy Daylight Savings Time, too. I mean, it was like, yeah, give give it up, boo, right? It's, hey, you won't be booing at 7 o'clock tonight. That's all I got to say, right? It's uh, good to see you, though, today, guys. And uh, and our live stream community, thanks for just tuning in with us this morning. Those of you who don't know me, my name is David Gadini, pastor here at Fellowship of Faith. And what we've been doing through this season that Christians call Lent is going through a section of Isaiah called the Servant Songs. It's all about how God works. And, and, and all of us have wondered this at time. Like, God, how do you actually like, work? Or how are you working? Or, or how do I see when you're working before us? And Isaiah's journey through this is showing how God predominantly works through this character that Isaiah will call the servant. And in the prophet Isaiah, there are five poems or five songs that give five different perspectives or pictures on what this servant is like and how God goes about doing his work in this world. And we can look at the servant as a glimpse of that. To date so far, we've seen three different pictures of this servant. We've seen that the servant is doused by God in God's spirit. And what he does, he does in the power and and, and just glory of God's spirit to bring justice to the world, to right wrongs. But unlike the way that so many people clamor for justice today, he will not, and I love the imagery, snuff out a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed. But in some very other kind of way, God is bringing good where there's evil and right out of wrong and seeing that his, his goodness and righteousness and justice is done in the world. It's one picture we get from Isaiah. There's a second picture that we've seen where the servant is God's secret weapon. He's described as a a shining sword hidden in the hand or a, a, a polished arrow hidden in the quiver that he is both unexpected and yet absolutely effective. And we saw that there was a third picture as well that the servant is resolute. He's determined. He, as Isaiah puts it, sets his face like flint. And he is resolute in carrying out God's mission of bringing reconciliation to us in the world, to the world itself, to God, even at his own personal expense. And today we get to picture number four. This fourth song or poem, this fourth perspective on this servant and therefore on how God works. And I want to invite you to follow along because this passage gets longer. It's way too long to put on the screen. We're going to anchor the passage, you know, address up there, but you're going to need to follow along with it. And I don't want you to just hear it. I want you to to, to read it. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 And for about a chapter, we're going to go through this journey of this fourth picture of this 
servant. If you don't know where to go on your phone right now, you can go quickly to any kind of Bible app that's out there. You can just Google Bible and, and, and you know, a thousand options will come up. BibleGateway.com is one website I particularly like. If you don't have the YouVersion app on your phone, I highly encourage you to download that before you leave today and have 800 Bibles on your phone with you wherever you go. Um, but follow along with me. And as I read this, you know, you take your translation of choice. I, I tend to be like, like an NIV guy. Um, it, it's what I grew up with. It's what I know well. Um, and so it's kind of where I dance. But, but I've always found value in, in looking at how other translations will put things. You follow along on the translation of your choice, what you like best. But as you read, let me share this out of a different translation. It's called The Message, one that I've come to like a lot. And dare I say, if you're ever reading the Bible and you're either A, just going, I, I have no idea what this is about, or B, utterly bored, try it in The Message. Try it in the message and see if through this translation or paraphrase, if God doesn't work in that in some kind of new and fresh way and, and engage your thinking in a different way. Again, you don't need to follow along in the message with me. But maybe as I read this and you look at the words on your page, it brings things to light. Isaiah 52, verse 13, our fourth picture of how God works through a servant. Just watch my servant blossom, exalted, tall, head and shoulders above the crowd. But he didn't begin this way. At first, everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past recognition. Nations all over the world will be in awe, taken aback. Kings shocked into silence when they see him. For what was unheard of, they'll see with their own eyes. What was unthinkable, they'll have right before them. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God. A scrawny seedling. A scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered. He knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. 
We're all like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost. We've all gone and done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong on him, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was led off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man. And though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true, still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones. And he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and he didn't flinch. Because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. Whew. Doesn't that one just get kind of, get in you a bit? Yahweh is a God who suffers. Isaiah says many things about Yahweh, uh, about God. He describes God in so many ways. God is exalted. God is all-powerful. God is creator. God is holy. God is eternal. God is compassionate. But Isaiah describes Yahweh and the pages of the Bible drip with it too, that God is something more. God is also a God who suffers. Yahweh suffers. I love how the Jewish theologian and philosopher Abraham Heschel puts this. He'll write that God does not just command and expect obedience, but he is moved and affected by the suffering in this world and he reacts accordingly. The pages of the Bible are filled with a God who is affected and moved, a God who feels, a God who suffers, a God who regrets and relents and repents, 
A God not who is distant and above it all, but a God who is deeply, deeply affected by it. For many people, this doesn't square with their perception of God. For many, God is seen as someone who is above it all, distant, detached, removed. And to suggest even that God might suffer well, is to open up things that they just can't come to terms with. Because to suggest that God suffers, doesn't that not also suggest that God might then also be vulnerable? And if God is vulnerable, is then God not also weak or imperfect? Entire schools of theology will write about the attributes of God, talking about how God is impassable, how God is immutable, all ways of just describing how God must be above being able to be affected by suffering. And yet I love how Abraham Heschel in his most popular work called The Prophets, read it sometime, it is a good use of your life, will talk in theological terms, in, in apologetic terms, even if I could put it that way, that conventional thinking about God probably owes more that your thinking, Christian thinking, Jewish thinking, Muslim thinking, Western thinking about God arguably is influenced more by the Greek philosophers than by Moses and Isaiah, that God is not so much the unmoved mover as much as he is the most moved mover. That God is affected by things and suffers because of, with, and for his people. How does it square with your perception of God? I don't know. How is God all-powerful? How is God unchanging and yet affected simultaneously? I don't know, but I know this. The Bible's filled with paradoxes. God is one, yet God is three. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. You who seek to save your life will lose it, while you who seek to lose your life for Christ in the gospel will find it. I don't know. What I know is that the pages drip. The pages of the Bible drip with a God who is affected, feels and is moved, a God who suffers. And if you can't come to grips with that, may I just challenge you this morning to ask yourself if your perception of God comes more from Plato and Aristotle than it does from Jesus. I love how the writer to the Hebrews puts this. Let me read this to you from Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. He says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through 
suffering. That Jesus himself was perfected through suffering. That what God is doing in this world was perfected through suffering. Let me keep reading. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death, by their fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know what it means? God knows what it's like. Your struggles, your temptations, God knows what it's like. Every struggle and temptation you faced, Jesus felt. He felt. And he knows what it's like. You don't go alone. That whatever you're suffering, whatever you're suffering, and even whatever the cause, he knows what it's like. It's a picture that God is not detached or unable to sympathize as the writer of Hebrews puts it because, oh man, I've been there. I've been there and I feel it. I feel it and I felt it. I felt it and I know it. Oh, I know what it's like. That God identifies with you in your suffering because God is a God who suffers. He suffers because of the sins of the world. Think about it. We sin all the time. Most of the time, it ain't a second thought. It doesn't seem to be a big deal. We got away with it. No one really got hurt. Not too much got disrupted by, you know, you know we all kind of spin our own narrative on this, right? But have you ever thought that that, that that actually hurts God? That God feels pain? How much less likely are we to do things when we see the pain it causes in someone's life that we love? When we see what hurts our kid or our spouse or a friend? It kind of serves as a warning light to us, doesn't it? To go, oh, I shouldn't do this. I need to be about this. This is affecting them. I mean, unless you're a sociopath, we all do this naturally. Unless your heart is hardened. We all almost do this instinctually. But do we ever pause to think, that the cruel things that I think, the callous things that I say, the things that I neglect and don't occupy myself with, that God is actually suffering. As a result, God suffers. He suffers because of the sins of people. 
But not just because of them, he suffers with them too. And the suffering that you face, that we face, he plunges himself in the midst of it and more the picture of this servant is that he suffers for them too. That not just because, not just with, but even on behalf of, that God suffers for you. Have you ever thought about this? That God chooses to suffer to spare you from suffering. That God steps in to take the brunt in ways you will never realize and to take it upon himself and not like it's just a but in a way that affects him deeply. The message and good news of the Bible is that God sent his son precisely to suffer on behalf of this world. To die for the people of this world. To to suffer for the people of this world. To take the suffering and death that they deserve and take it upon himself. Jesus suffers for you. Yahweh suffers because of, with, and on behalf of his people and he works through suffering. It's not just an unfortunate event. It's not just a gotta deal with this one. No, for whatever odd reason, this picture of the servant is that God chooses for whatever reason to work through suffering. Tell me, would you have chosen a different way? Hmm, we got three options here. Let's pick the suffering one. That's God's way. God has chosen to work through suffering. It doesn't mean we'll always know why we're suffering. It doesn't mean that every time we suffer, God is setting us up for some some greater agenda like a pawn in a game. But it does assure us that our suffering can have meaning. And that through it, God can work good even out of the most horrible and horrendous of situations. And that God will get his work done, not by circumventing that path, but by plunging with you through it right till the end. A servant with a face like flint, resolute, no matter the cost to himself, choosing the path of suffering with you. And so we see in the prophet Isaiah, Israel suffering. And God saying, your suffering will have meaning and impact, bringing light and atonement to the nations that don't know me around. We see Isaiah suffering. Suffering and struggling on behalf of the people of Israel. We see Jesus embodying it all. Suffering as God's servant for his people and the people that don't call him by name. All as a reflection of suffering and we too will be called to suffering as well. That God doesn't say if. If. But when Jesus suffered, and so we who identify with him and by his name, 
Yes, we will suffer too. All of this is a reflection of a God who suffers. A God who suffers for you. There's two pictures I want to show you. And, and I like showing them in distinction and contrast to one another, representing two not just major belief systems, but ways that people think about God. I think of this picture on the left. This giant opulent statue of Buddha in Sri Lanka, a place marked by poverty and suffering, marked by it like so many corners of the world. And here we have an image of God. We have an image of God who is clean and serene and pristine, calm, quiet, removed, unfazed and untouched. Above the suffering, at least as it's believed to exist, of this world. It's interesting and it should make you think that that never became the primary symbol of Christianity. No, its primary symbol became something very different instead. A device of torture and suffering. A symbol of execution and shame. No matter how much gold you put on the cross you wear around your neck, no matter how much you adorn this ancient symbol of Christianity, no matter how pretty you try to make it, never forget what it truly is. A primary way of understanding who God is, a God who suffers in the most horrific ways for you. This is the God of Isaiah, the God of the Bible, Jesus, the suffering one, Yahweh, the suffering one, and the vision of how he works in our world today and every day. until he comes again. Oh, and that vision? Did you read it? Did you remember it? Did you mark it? Did it jump out at you? The glory? The reward? The hope? The promise? The exaltation? Oh, 
of the one who suffered for me and you. Because of the path he chose to go through. Path of suffering. What does the great hymn of Revelation say? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Glory, glory is he. To him who sits on <laughs> that throne of glory, worthy is he. What do the angels surround the throne room of heaven sing? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. How was he identified, the lamb who was slain? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It is the hymn song worthy of the God who suffers. I want to invite you to rise. And let's share in that, that ancient hymn of glory.
God, you are holy of holies. You, the lamb who was slain, you are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You and you alone who suffered on our behalf, you and you alone now high and lifted up, you and you alone who identify with us in our suffering. May our hearts, may our knees, may our hands, may our voices, may they be bowed before you and lifted up, exalting you above all things. Glory be your name, O God. Glory. Glory be your name. Amen. Amen. And with all the joy you can muster, with every ounce of what you can offer to God, Amen. To Him be the glory. Now and forevermore. Amen. I invite you to take a seat. I just want to end the service now. But we commune today. We commune today as a way of receiving Jesus' suffering on our behalf. And we commune today 
as a way of identifying and dare I say even sharing or, or maybe better opening ourselves to pick up our cross and follow him. The Apostle Paul, who knew suffering well, would write to early believers, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do I believe it? Do I trust it? Will I walk the path that you've called me to follow? To be a people who are not guilty of ignoring God, dismissing God, or even just listening to God. but willing to follow him as well. In the early chapters of Acts, this amazing narration of life in the, in the church, Luke will describe what it was like. A people who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer where everyone was filled with awe. As many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles where all the believers were together and had everything in common and where they would sell their possessions and goods to give to those who had need describes how every day they would continue to meet in the temple courts, how they broke bread in their homes with glad hearts, with sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people and how the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. It is a picture, it is a dream. God has for us today. Each week this Lent, we've been trying to take seriously God's call to examine ourselves. Highlighting a different aspect. Today I want to talk about gratitude. Sacrifice. And the invitation to self-suffering, if you will. For him, ways that we are able to pour forth the wonderful gifts that God has given you. You could see how the early Christians devoted themselves to these kinds of things. And this morning I invite you to examine yourself against this. If you're new with us today, we're just 
inviting you to something we've been doing this Lent, to take a few moments, to pray, to be honest. And as I guide you through a series of questions this morning, to examine yourself in light of them before God. Close your eyes if you need to, if it helps you focus. Whatever you do, just make it a time. A time of communication and connection with him. How would you answer these? I trust God more with my time, my finances, even my very life than I did a year ago. Yes or no? How would you answer that today? I'm more generous than I was a year ago. Generous with my church, my family, the needs of others in this world. I practice hospitality in my home and with my possessions. I seek to serve and regularly do so here at FOF or elsewhere. I tithe. I give regularly, proportionately, from the first of what I receive and not remainder. Sacrificially in a way that affects me. I feel more gratitude towards God today than I did a year ago. Examine yourself, Paul says, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, and as the message translation will put it. If you see that you fail the test, well, just do something about it. Not to earn God's love for you. That is inviolate and unchanging. But as a way of picking up your cross... and to walk the way of Jesus and identify with him. And that path of giving and sacrifice and suffering. 